Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. I am so glad you have decided to join me for this episode. My goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Today's episode revisits a topic that we have talked about a couple of times on the show, and that is the topic of infrastructure as code. But in today's episode, we're going to be focusing a little more on how you take that practice of using infrastructure as code and begin to scale it beyond a single developer to a team of developers or a team of infrastructure engineers, right? And what are the challenges that you face and how do you address said challenges? So joining me to discuss this topic is Tim Davis. Tim, how are you? I am doing good. Thanks for having me. Well, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Now, you and I used to work together, so I know you, but listeners may not. So why don't you take a moment and just kind of give the listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, where you come from, what you're doing these days. You can throw in, you know, online contact information like Twitter or blog or something like that as well. All right. Well, uh, I'm Tim Davis. I'm currently a DevOps advocate with a uh, infrastructure as code startup called M0. My history is in infrastructure. I was previously at VMware, uh, where I worked as a cloud developer advocate. Before that, I was in the networking and security business unit. But uh, you know, overall, I've gone through the gamut of everything from help desk all the way through infrastructure, from engineering to architecture. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, oh, and did you have some contact information you wanted to throw oh, out yep, there for listening? I sure did. I apologize. Yeah, so I am at VTimD on Twitter. Great. And well, listeners, if you didn't catch that, don't worry. It's going to be in the show notes, and we'll get Tim to repeat that towards the end of the show. So it's all good. All right. So we're talking about infrastructure as code. And this is something that I've visited on the show a couple of different times. I think it's an important topic for infrastructure engineers to know about and to be educated about. But previously in discussing infrastructure as code on the podcast, I've discussed it in the context of, hey, here's this tool that you want to use. For example, I did a podcast with uh, Pulumi about their tool uh, or, you know, hey, here are some best practices. I had a great conversation with one of the SREs from formerly Heptio about some of the challenges around Terraform and managing Terraform state and that kind of stuff. But I want to talk about this sort of in the perspective of you're an infrastructure engineer, you've decided to embrace infrastructure as code, you know, you've started working with it, but now you've got this other team with you that are other infrastructure engineers. And like, what are some of the challenges that folks run into when they start extending it beyond one or two infrastructure engineers to an entire team of folks? It all comes down to visibility, really. Uh, infrastructure as code, when you're just one person and you're running your Terraform and you're running your Pulumi, you're doing it from your local laptop and you're spinning up those resources in the cloud. But things like managing state, managing variable values, um, you know, and like who's deployed what, that kind of thing really kind of starts to come into play when you start to scale that out to multiple team members. So let's dig in there just a little bit. I'll start with probably the, the elephant in the room, and that's the idea of state. I don't want to assume that listeners are already familiar with infrastructure as code and some of this terminology that we're using. So let's take a minute first and sort of define what is it we're talking about when we talk about the state of managing infrastructure as code? Like, you know, what is this thing called state? Sure. What is it this, that they're having to worry about? Yeah. So we'll take a half step back and start with like infrastructure as code in general. So there's generally two types. You have declarative infrastructure and you have imperative infrastructure. 
declarative infrastructure, you write your files just to say, in the end, I want it to look like this. I want this many web servers to do that, and et cetera, et cetera. Imperative is more of like a script where it's do this, 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 and this. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, once you run your infrastructure's code, you have what's called a state. And that is just telling you, this is what's deployed. This is what I have. So that when you go through and if something happens and you need to redeploy, it can say, well, I had this, but now I have this. Let's go ahead and fix it and put it back. Gotcha. Okay. So we can think of the state uh, when we're working with an infrastructure as code tool and various tools manage it in various ways. But we can think of this as mm -hmm. the, the tooling's attempt to capture, you know, what is actually going on in the environment so that if you make a change to the, you know, the, your infrastructure as code configuration, it can then try to reconcile or understand, you know, what was there or is there as I understand it and what is the user asking for and what do I need to do to make these two match? Is that reasonable? Exactly right. It is the single source of truth of what the infrastructure's code knows is out there or thinks is out there. Right. Okay. So, you know, we talked about various tools managing, doing this in various ways, you know, some tools will do this with local files on your laptop, as you alluded. Mm -hmm. Some of them have support for various cloud-based backends, like Terraform can write its state into S3, for example. But what is, what is the challenge here? I mean, now that we understand what state is, what is the challenge when it comes to scaling infrastructure as code to a group of individuals? Yeah, and when you have state, you always want to try to centralize that because if you have multiple people, that are running these infrastructure as code files, they're making changes, they're doing what they need to do to you know, run the app or run the business. You need to be able to have it where when all of these people run their different things, they're checking against that same single source of truth. They need to be able to know, hey, this is what's out there. And if somebody makes a change to it, that has to be updated and rewritten so that it doesn't mess with somebody else's configuration. If everybody's state files are just strewn about across all of their different laptops, it's not really a single source of truth at that point. It's just that one person's single source of truth. So if you centralize all that state together, it really gives you a single spot to say, this is what it's supposed to look like right now. Do we really see environments where folks have state files on their laptops when they're working in a group environment? Oh, you bet. I mean, it just, to me, it seems like, whoa, I mean, <laughs> Right. Yeah, uh, it seems like a problem and it, it's just kind of how it is. And usually it's with either a smaller shop or it's going to be a younger shop that's just trying to get going or they're just dipping their feet into infrastructure as code. You know, one of the infrastructure guys or one of the developers kind of figures it out and puts all their stuff together and has it on their laptop. Then they tell somebody else, hey, I'm doing this. And they go, oh, I'm going to do that, too. So then they have it. And it just kind of proliferates across all of the engineers. And all of a sudden, they've all got their own stacks. So it absolutely happens. Well, I can definitely see that as being a recipe for disaster. I mean, consider, you know, you know, infrastructure engineer A goes to update the infrastructure's code configuration. And so she makes some changes and she doesn't apply. And so mm -hmm. her state is up to date. But then infrastructure engineer B goes to make some changes and doesn't bother to refresh the state first. And then, you know, now you're yep. getting into some weird, funky situations. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of problems that come around with mismatched state. And even so, if you've got engineers that are just going into the cloud and clicking and adding more stuff to it manually versus doing it the right way with the infrastructure as code, um, and you get what's called drift, where what's actually deployed doesn't match the state of what should be deployed. Yeah, that's a good point. Because 
and especially, in a, I guess we would refer to them as a younger organization, like, you know, an organization that's newer to this sort of technology, you may have a situation where somebody's like, oh, I need to make this change to get into production right away. I don't have time to go write, you know, the Terraform DSL code or whatever it is. I'm just going to go make this change real quick. And then. Right. Okay. And that's where we get dripped. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, but it seems like this is a easily solvable problem, or at least the centralization of state seems like an easily solvable problem. And that would be just be say, all right, everybody, you know, assuming your, your tooling supports storing state files on S3, you know, mm -hmm. you configure everybody's machines to write their state files to S3 and you're done. I mean, is there, is there more to it or is it just a matter of saying, hey, as you're doing this, make sure that you are taking into account this distributed or centralized state problem. Is there something more than, than just that? Yeah, I mean, the process of doing that, the technology is called a remote state backend, and that's essentially just the place remotely that you're storing your state. Um, and that can be anything as easy as an S3 bucket all the way through. I, there's like Terraform Cloud does remote state backend management where all they do is we'll manage your state. Um, and it, it can be you know complicated. You can shove a bunch of files in there. So uh, it can really be as easy or as hard as you need it to be. What would drive an organization to say S3 is good enough versus I need to go Terraform Cloud? Is it a matter of like record locking, um, you know, being more granular about how it locks state? So when you have multiple users trying to update concurrently. Exactly right. You know, An S3 bucket is just Exactly. It's just a bucket. You put a file in there and it does what it does. If somebody overwrites the file and they have the rights to, then it's just going to overwrite and reversion that file. With something you know more beefed up than that, with a remote state backend, you can do state locking. Um, you can have a little more security control over who's writing it, when it's getting written to, and everything like that. So a lot of times S3 is kind of a first step into a remote state backend because it's very easy to configure and set up in your code as well as AWS. Um, so you do that, you've got a little encrypted spot there, then you realize you've got so many people writing these files over and over that you need to have a little more control over it. And that's when you you know look a little farther and find the uh, a little more complex tooling. Got it, okay. Now this also seems like there's some optimizations that could happen here with regards to sort of like process, right? So mm -hmm. if, and I'm just kind of spitballing here, right? But like, you've got a team of, you know, half a dozen infrastructure engineers or a dozen, whatever that number is. And, you know, people need to make changes, whatever. You're stuck on S3, so you can't really have any sort of grandeur locking, but it seems like, well, hey, maybe if I were to, you know, implement some code reviews and a git commit hook, then I could sort of streamline this flow of changes coming into the bucket. Do you yeah, see exactly that sort of thing right. happening as opposed to somebody going to, a, a more robust remote state backend? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it all depends on what kind of processing you need. I mean, DevOps is DevOps. There, it means everything different to every person. There's so many different ways to accomplish the same thing. And certain ways could be different based on, you know, one or two tiny little variables that change in, you know, company A's problem versus company B's problem. There's lots of folks out there that are utilizing GitOps workflows and things like that. Uh, GitOps, that's a weird term to me because I feel that it's horribly overused. Uh, it was a term coined by Weaveworks, and it means 
something very, very specific, and it, it's infrastructure operations driven by pull requests. So in order to change the infrastructure, you have to open a pull request. You have to make your changes. It has to go through a review or a build and test, whatever you have during that process before it's actually merged back to main and then pushed out into prod or what have you. But a lot of people just say, oh, I have my infrastructure as code in Git, and that's it, and that's GitOps. No. So absolutely, there's folks out there that are utilizing all kinds of different development procedures to essentially do what we used to do back in the day of like right-clicking on a template in vCenter and creating a new VM. So moving to these new models opens up new challenges. There's new ways of kind of going about it. Um, and definitely Git is a huge tool for that. All right. I just want to make sure listeners sort of understand like, as there often is in technology, there's multiple ways to sort of address this challenge, right? Obviously, you need some sort of centralized place to mm -hmm. store state and, and that sort of thing. But in terms of like how people get to it, how people make changes to the infrastructure's code configuration and how those changes then reflect in changes in the state, you don't necessarily have to go directly to some sort of advanced remote state backend. You could be looking at you know, a, a GitOps-driven workflow where the changes end up being less parallel and more sequential. Right. Makes yeah, it all, it all depends on what works for, for them. Right, right. But the important thing is that they have options, right? So if, if as a listener, your organization is adopting infrastructure as code, like you have options and the, the trick now is to explore what those options are and figure out which one of those options works best for your organization, your use case, and your team. Exactly right. So one of the other challenges, in addition to state, and I'll just point out, by the way, that like, you know, state management and protecting your blast radius or limiting your blast radius is one of the core topics I touched on when I, when I spoke with Kurt Michael early on in the series. And I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes so folks can, can listen to that as well. But that was a really, really good episode on sort of finding ways to structure your Terraform code so as to minimize potential changes or problems with Terraform state, so. That's great. All right, so one of the other challenges was, was this idea of like providing variable values when you run, uh, you know, the equivalent of whatever an apply is, like whatever that command looks like for the tooling that you're using, you know, whether it's a mm -hmm. Terraform or apply or, is it, is it apply? It's been so long since I used Terraform? Yes, yeah, yeah okay. Terraform apply. <laughs> right. Okay, I've been spending more time with Pulumi, so I'm just thinking like <laughs> Pulumi up, right? Which is the right. equivalent. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this idea of like, okay, I'm, I'm writing a fairly generic infrastructure as code configuration. Like I'm not hard coding values and names and that sort of thing in here because then it, it's not flexible. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's right. very brittle, right? And so when you run it, you have to supply these variable values, but invariably, and no pun intended there, <laughs> that ends up meaning like environment variables defined on a machine or some sort of file. And then because this file sometimes contains secrets, they don't want it committed to source control. You know, what, what are folks doing in this space? Like, I mean, what do you, sure. how do you address that? Now, by default, if we go all the way back to that, you know, single developer or infrastructure engineer that's working on their laptop, they're generally creating tfvars files, which is just a variable file that they put all their variables in. Then when they run their code, it's going to pull in all of those variable values and execute against it. Now, the reason people are doing this, it's, it's an old development technique called dry or don't repeat yourself. So you're essentially writing your code in such a way that you don't have to have multiple copies of this exact same code for every single little deployment, but changed just so much 
for that environment. You don't want to have to do that. It's best if you have one generic piece of code that you then you know, insert all your little values for and push it on for each individual environment. Now with this TFVARS file, if you, like you mentioned, if you have secrets in this and you commit that to your public Git repository, I guarantee you that that will be scraped and your account will be compromised within 10 minutes. There are bots on the internet that are scraping public Git repos all day, every day, and they're looking for specific like regex values of like AWS, you know, access key IDs and secret uh, access keys. And the second they find it, they will immediately start spinning up workloads in your account and that'll be it. <laughs> You'll have to either cancel the account or figure out how to go through and clear every single one of those out. It has happened to teams I've been on. It is a big, big deal. Now, if you're doing it locally, you can absolutely mitigate that using like Git ignore and stuff like that. You can essentially tell it, upload everything to Git in this folder, but leave this file out. Now, that's a great way of securing it and kind of limiting that blast radius that you were talking about there. But that doesn't really scale across teams, which is really what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, uh, leaving it out of your source code repository, you know, your, your version control is, you know, <laughs> like you said, I mean, it does keep it from getting leaked, especially if you're using public, you know, repositories, but it doesn't necessarily make those values available to other team members when they might need them for some purpose, right? Exactly um, right. So if they want to go through and figure out what's been deployed or what the current value is or what have you, they would have to go and ask you. Um, so you really want to be able to, you know, go through and figure out who did what, where, and why. And it comes down to the exact same problem as why you would centralize state. And now it just comes down to you need to centralize your variable values as well. State I knew about, like, you know, remote state backends or whatever, but I honestly do not have a solution for like secrets, essentially is what we're talking about here. Yeah, right. exactly right. So there's lots of secret managers out there. Um, the biggest name is going to be HashiCorp's vault that they created for this exact purpose. And they had a bunch of people out there that were running Terraform. They were needing to figure out how to store their secrets. Now, vault isn't just you know a key value database anymore that you just put one thing in there. This thing will actually go and automatically generate new credential sets for you. It'll rotate your keys. Uh, it, it is a huge deal. There are other secret managers as well. Each of the clouds have their own, uh, AWS, Azure, Google has their own secret managers. Uh, but really this is the best way to kind of make sure that your credentials are able to be centralized and shared, but still kept safe. So a couple thoughts out of that. Like I knew about Vault, but Vault it seems like using, you know, like a nuclear warhead to take out a cockroach. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, a vault implementation is a big deal just in and of itself to make sure you've got it right, right and, and all that kind of jazz. So that's like a whole nother project. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that if that's the route you want to go down. But I mean, just like there should be a faster slash easier slash more lightweight solution. And so leveraging some of your cloud providers options would be would be one way of doing it. So that's one thought. The other thought is we talk about credentials and that's fair, but like it's not just about credentials though, right? I mean, like, Let's say that, that we have some code that spins up an environment. I'll use AWS as an example. It spins up an AWS VPC with some subnets and some instances and, you know, da, 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 whatever, right? And we have this sufficiently parameterized so that 
you know, you can throw some variables at it and it will create an environment with, you know, distinct names and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, you, you, you kind of need to keep track of like those values and they're not necessarily credentials. That's more like configuration, right? Of, you know, well, Tim just ran this infrastructure as code with this set of values to create this environment. And the rest of the team kind of needs to know because like, you know, maybe I was getting ready mm -hmm. to go run that environment or maybe I need to make some changes to that environment. I need to know what those variables right. are so I can modify the code and I can rerun it and da da da. I mean, like, you see where I'm going? Exactly. And we're getting to the point here where we're going to start talking about cloud management platforms. <laughs> so you've got your state that you've got to manage. You've got visibility across who deployed what. You've got um, a bunch of variable values that you need to be able to centralize and see who used which one and where. Um, and this is really where your Terraform automation and collaboration platforms come in. Um, and this is where it brings everything together so you can actually start seeing what everybody's doing. Gotcha. Okay. So is that, what are the products in that space right now? Well, I happen to be with one. Uh, I'm with M0 and we do exactly that. Uh, there was a guy called Eric Osterman and he runs the SweetOps DevOps office hours once a week. And he coined the term TACOs, which is that Terraform automation collaboration software. It's outside of the CICD pipeline space and it's platforms that are purpose built to manage your infrastructure's code from deploy to destroy. So all the way through the life cycle of that. Um, you know, we're in that space. Terraform Cloud is obviously in that space. They're the big name because HashiCorp created Terraform. There's also Scalar and Spacelift and a few others that I keep hearing about you know, every other day. It's becoming a, a pretty big space, even though Gartner technically doesn't even have a, a, you know, a magic quadrant or anything for it yet. We could debate the value of the magic quadrant, but that's a different topic. For a different day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have this emerging category of software, uh, tacos, which is making me hungry for the record. But that is saying, okay, we're going to basically provide a solution for sort of all of these things that we've been talking about. So they're going to act as a remote state backend. They're going to be a form of a secrets manager in some form or fashion varying levels of comprehensiveness there. They're gonna be you know, a configuration store so that people can put in configuration parameters for various runs. And then they're going to track these deployments for lack of a better term, you know, which is a combination of the code plus configuration values you know, to create that, which of course then relates back to the state that was generated from that run. Exactly so right. I guess this, this brings us to that sort of the last challenge we were talking about, which was sort of like knowing who deployed what, when, right? And so it's these yeah. software packages or offerings that sort of provide that visibility. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like we mentioned a little bit ago, the answer is always, it depends. There's so many different ways you can do this. I mean, there's folks that are utilizing existing CICD pipelines like Jenkins to handle this. But the problem with those is that they're very process oriented where they'll go through, they burn through the pipeline step-by-step. Step. As soon as they're done and it's deployed, they wipe their hands of that pipeline run and never think about it again until the pipelines run again. Uh, it's really that day two plus operational stuff that you need to worry about with these environments. Of you need to make sure that you're, you know, keeping an eye on drift. You need to make sure you're keeping an eye on is this environment supposed to be deployed still, or was it supposed to be deleted a week ago when they were done with it? That's where these specialized platforms really come into play to really help you manage the overall life cycle and not just you know, process the pipeline, deploy it and be done with it. 
Yeah, so drift is is an important piece that I had inadvertently overlooked in describing some of this stuff because like I could see building a solution would say, okay, we're gonna do remote state backend and we're gonna implement, you know, like like S3 or you know, Azure Blob Storage or whatever mm -hmm. your choice of storage is there. And I'm gonna implement, you know, a uh, you know, a, a PR-driven workflow where you know I'm gonna be looking at changes that are essentially more sequential rather than multiple parallel changes. And then, you know, I'm going to I'm going to use a CI CD pipeline to sort of automate that whole process, right? But none of those things, correct me if I'm wrong, none of those things are actually going to detect and alert the users if drift occurs or is present. Right, and that's, that's actually kind of falls onto just the way that Terraform works. Terraform is not actively looking at your state and making sure that somebody didn't go into Azure or AWS and just add things. Terraform is only checking state whenever you run Terraform again, because it'll go through and it'll do the init, it'll check the current state, it'll run the plan again, and at that point in time, it'll tell you, hey, here's what I see, here's what's out there. Um, so that's one of those things where these tools can help you keep the, that plan running, like scheduling it once a day or whatever, to make sure that you're kind of checking against that state and making sure that it is deployed the way that it's supposed to be deployed, not the way that somebody went and you know, made it. So it kind of makes me wonder, like, are they literally running a, you know, a, a Terraform plan to see what is different or are they being a little more sophisticated than that? Now, there are tools out there that will do what's basically active drift detection and it will, you know, look at your state and then it'll, you point it at your cloud and it sits there and just watches and waits and then yells at you if somebody goes out and does something else, um, like, you know, clicks around and adds a new instance. But I'm not seeing that a lot. When talking to customers, a lot of them, while they are worried about Drift, just telling them that, hey, we can set a cron job. It'll run, you know, once a day or once an hour or whatever, and it'll check the current state. The, usually most folks are fine with that. It, it all comes down to how big your organization is. Um, Drift can be important. It cannot be important. If your app doesn't change that often, you could have an extra instance in there for six months and nobody would notice. Um, so really, it, it all depends on what your velocity is, how fast you're making these infrastructure changes. That's when Drift really starts to come in because if you're updating and redeploying and if you've got ephemeral environments that you're burning down and spinning up over and over again, you really need the Drift to stay in check. Gotcha, okay. So. We've talked about managing state. We've talked about sort of managing both credentials or, or other you know, sensitive secrets, but also how to manage sort of configuration, right? And, and providing some level of visibility into sort of what has been deployed, right? Some sort of central place mm -hmm. where you can go and say, show me all the things that have been deployed using this code. And, and drift management, are there any other considerations that folks need to think about if they're, you know, again, one of these organizations that is just now beginning to move from one or maybe two infrastructure engineers to now a whole team of them. Yeah, uh, role-based access control is usually what comes up with this. Everybody loves the idea of self-service catalogs and being able to deploy whatever you want whenever you want. Um, but from a financial perspective, this can get out of hand really quickly. Putting governance and controls around this saying, yes, you can deploy whatever you want, but you can only have three deployments at one time, or we're going to lock down your variable values so you can only select one, two, or three instances at you know one time, um, or you can only deploy to this region. 
making sure that when you're starting to scale and you're starting to give people access to spin all this stuff up that you are paying attention to not only be able to see who's deploying what, where, and when, and how, but controlling who can deploy what, where, when, and how. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like not just controlling, which is an excellent point, but but like that visibility of like who has run it and, and having some, you know, potential cost controls or, or, you know, cost reporting at least that might be a separate sort of thing, but having some visibility into that, I could see definitely be important. And, and as soon as you, you start scaling to multiple users, then you're going to need some, you know, type of control. Otherwise people just you know, end up going crazy, right? <laughs> need some guardrails. <laughs> exactly right. All right, cool. So, so, you know, key challenges here for listeners, we're going to recap real quick and then move mm -hmm. forward. Key challenges here, state management, credential slash configuration management, you know, some, some visibility into, you know, how the code has been used and who's used it, uh, mm -hmm. drift management, role-based access control. So you mentioned some of the companies, you mentioned Scalar and Spacelift, I think it was, and mm -hmm. of course Terraform Cloud and your own and Zero. without getting sort of, you know, too sales pitchy. I mean, like, <laughs> how are these folks all differentiating themselves from one another? I mean, I think Terraform Cloud probably differentiates themselves by saying, hey, we're HashiCorp. You know, we wrote this exactly. thing. <laughs> and that, that seems to be the, the big thing that we're, we're competing against is their HashiCorp. The reason that we end up winning or that I think that we excel is the same reason why I was compelled to leave a really good job at VMware and come work for these folks. It, we are hyper-focused on user experience. Uh, whether you're using the API or the UI, we want to make it as easy as possible to do and manage all of the things that we just spoke about. We like handling your you know, state and figuring out where that goes, doing all of the role-based access control, setting up, monitoring, visualizations, making sure that you're taking care of everything. We want it to be as easy as possible. We want you to be able to go to the platform, sign up for free and start deploying stuff without having to read a whole bunch or watch a bunch of videos or have a phone call with somebody like me. Got it. I mean, although, you know, it would be nice for people to have a conversation with somebody like you. I mean, you know. Absolutely. That's what I'm here for. You know, I'm, I like to uh, go out and post a bunch of gifts on Twitter for a living, but every once in a while, you know, I have the customer phone calls. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's critically important for folks that are in the infrastructure space, and I've been referring to them as infrastructure engineers, mm -hmm. to really understand the role that infrastructure as code can play in their environments and in their careers overall. Right. I think, you know, while folks used to relegate infrastructure as code to kind of like this, this small inner corner, like, oh, this is for those really advanced folks, those folks who, you know, only run, you know, their own custom apps, blah, blah, blah. This, I mean, like there yeah. was a sort of a, you know, a little niche over here that you stuck people using infrastructure as code into. But I think that's not the case anymore. So broadening the topic just a little bit before we wrap up, I'm wondering like, mm -hmm. you know, what advice would you give to these infrastructure engineers who we are challenging to say, you need to look at infrastructure as code. You need to try to embrace it. You need to try to use it in your environment. Yep. What advice would you give to them as they start down this path? What are some helpful tidbits of wisdom from Tim Davis? You've definitely got to keep up. The first step is, you know, listening to this podcast. Uh, I've been a fan for a while. I've gotten a lot from it over the years. You, you've got to keep up. You've got to learn. You've got to figure that, you know, at some point in time, DevOps is coming for you <laughs> and you're going to be told, hey, you need to either learn how to do this or we're going to give it to the developers because they code anyways. Now, that works for some shops, but really infrastructure is still 
infrastructure. It is still your job and you're in charge of it. And you're going to save yourself a lot of time, especially from like a you know disaster recovery standpoint. If all of your infrastructure is codified and somebody goes and your account gets blown away and you've got to start over, well, great. Just you know, Terraform init, Terraform apply, enter. You know, however many minutes later, your infrastructure is back. So it's something that's going to help you out. You're going to retool a little bit. You're going to learn what Git is and how it works, which is a beast in of itself. It's the wave of the future. It has been for a while. It's definitely not niche anymore. Um, and getting out there and kind of figuring out what's out there. Terraform is obviously the biggest one. Pulumi is really coming up fast. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff that they have going on. I'm really interested in how they move forward within the next year. So uh, it's definitely something that you should keep an eye on and start looking at. I'm obviously in complete agreement that, you know, this is something that infrastructure engineers really need to pay attention to. I think this is probably in my list of like top three things that you should be really paying attention to and really focusing on as an infrastructure engineer. I, I used to have this line that I would say when I was presenting at a conference, you know, back when those things existed. And it was like, you know, how, how many people here are getting paid to, to do less with more? Like, you know, your boss is saying, oh, oh yeah. take two weeks instead <laughs> of a week, you know, take five people on your team instead of three, you know, like it doesn't happen, right? And the only way that exactly as right. infrastructure engineers, folks are going to be more effective and more efficient is to embrace automation. And one great way of embracing automation is infrastructure as code. I mean, it's not just, you know, embracing the future. This could be the next step for your career. Um, you start learning infrastructure's code, you figure out how the GitOps workflow is, and all of a sudden you're qualified for a, you know, a DevOps engineer job at a much better company. Now, you know, DevOps engineer can mean a lot of things. It could just be sysadmin with a flashy title, but it is also something very important uh, that could step you up into an SRE title. Uh, so it's definitely something that people should be looking at and not just from their job now, but what their job could be, you know, a year from now. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, given that we are, we tend to focus, you know, in this podcast on, you know, the ongoing journey of learning across one's career. I think it's really, really important to put this in the context of what this means for my career, right? Um, to think long-term, not just short-term, but to think about how does this open up opportunities for the next role or even the role beyond the next role. Exactly right. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I have really, really enjoyed the conversation. Before we wrap up, Leon, to just give you a chance once again to sort of give any sort of contact information uh, for the listeners, you know, uh, website. Why don't you? Why don't you? You know, tell us the the N zero website. Although we can probably guess what it is, um, but your, your Twitter <laughs> information, anything like that. So, yeah, absolutely. So I'm at the Tim D on Twitter. Um, that is probably the fastest way to get a hold of me. Kyle Ruddy used to make a joke on stage at you know V mugs and things about how you could get to him via Twitter faster than email. It's absolutely correct. If you want to get a hold of me, find me on Twitter. Um, if you're looking for Terraform automation and collaboration software, you can find us at env0.com. And that's about it. Uh, hopefully this was helpful for folks. I really appreciate you having me on. This is a, a bucket list podcast of mine. It uh, has been for a long time, so it's uh, really cool to be on. Well, hey, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. And I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And I think this is and has been useful. I think it's it's really important to tell folks that are embarking down a path these are the potholes to watch out for. These are the things to look for. You know, lots of people tell you how to get started, but then they don't tell you how to scale it. 
They don't tell you how to how to continue on. Exactly. They don't tell you what to and for. there's so many different variables that go into it. The generic systems engineer answer for everything is it depends. So just letting you know there's options out there. There's tons of people out there to help. Um, I'm a huge proponent of Reddit. Uh, the Reddit Terraform group is awesome. The Reddit DevOps group is awesome. There's so many helpful people out there to you know answer your questions. And just because one person swears that it worked for them doesn't mean that it will for you. So it's also trial and error. You got to get out there and just give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah, but I mean, it was on the internet, so it must be true. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Tim. Listeners, thanks so much for joining uh, Tim and I today to talk about, you know, the challenges of scaling infrastructure as code beyond, you know, an individual to, you know, smooth the way to, to get your entire team working uh, using this very important uh, sort of methodology of handling infrastructure. If you need to reach me, your host, Scott Lowe, you can hit me on Twitter, like Tim. That's probably often the best way to do that. So I'm at Scott underscore Lowe on Twitter. Uh, blog site is blog.scottlowe.org. This episode, along with the show notes and all other episodes, are always available on the packetpushers.net website. And uh, you can also interact with the podcast uh, directly on Twitter as well, at FSJ Podcast. Um, if you do enjoy the show and uh, like Tim, you consider it you know, to be this great resource. I appreciate that. Please take a few minutes to give us some feedback and some uh, ratings on iTunes or the Google Play Store, or wherever it is that you are syndicating the podcast from. So thanks again for listening and have a great morning, day, evening. <laughs>